All right. Were you thankful for the gospel this morning? Amen. You should be. The wonderful truth that we just sang there. And particularly, we ought to be very thankful for the gospel today because the subject we're going to get into now here, it is a heavy one. It is the subject of suffering. And no one here is a total stranger to suffering. We all encounter it. We all face it. We all have to endure it in its various forms. We all have aspects of our life that are difficult. We all have hardships. And even as I say this, things are coming to your mind that are personal areas of suffering for you. We all have times when we're forced to endure pain and heartache and misery. This is simply part of what it means to be a human and to live on this earth. What I'd like to do today is to paint a biblical framework regarding how we should think about our suffering, essentially to develop a theology of suffering. And for those of you who are presently in a place of, of great hardship, you're facing cancer, or divorce, or bankruptcy, a rebellious and wayward child, or the recent death of a loved one, I hope that this message will be an encouragement to you and provide you with some perspective that somehow uh, might help you make sense of the hardship that you face and in that find strength and empower you to help you bear up under that suffering. But for those of you who are presently not in an immense time of hardship, which is truly the majority of you here today, I'm sure you have your your hard struggles, your hard days, but you're you're not faced with the real kind of intense suffering that you see others enduring. This message is meant to prepare you for that time of suffering. Because that time is most certainly coming for all of us. When your heart will be broken and you will face a very difficult hardship unlike any that you have faced before. This is just part of the human condition, and as such, we need to think rightly about it. We need to consider our suffering through a mindset that is informed by God's Word. And to help us do that, let us first open to Hebrews chapter 11. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, now Hebrews 11 might not be the first chapter you think of when calling to mind passages that address human suffering. This is traditionally called the Hall of Faith chapter, and it is usually thought of as a very uplifting passage about great heroes of the Bible, and this is, this is true. But this passage also contains a very poignant section that will substantially help us consider this subject of suffering today. And I have to acknowledge that that John Piper has personally helped me a lot in understanding this chapter. In fact, it was a sermon I heard him uh, preach about 20 years ago that that first opened me to something I want to share with you today from this chapter. And in this chapter, we find an extensive list of prominent Old Testament saints. It lists, the chapter lists 16 of them by name, and it recounts their experiences of the people of God. And in doing so, it carries a repetitive structure. So most of the mentions of particular names uh, are preceded by the phrase, by faith. So by faith, Abel. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. And after mentioning the name, the author then goes on to account either a description of how that person acted on their faith or how that person received an incredible, wonderful blessing from the Lord. So for example... Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Verse 7, by faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age. What an incredible miracle there. Verse 23, 
By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And now look down at verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then goes on in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And so we see here a wonderful, encouraging pattern. Here's a group of incredible people, people who lived by faith, demonstrated wonderful faith. And they all received incredible blessings and miracles from the Lord. By faith, they were rescued, delivered, healed, protected, blessed, oftentimes in very miraculous ways. And so God parted the seas for his faithful people. He restored the barons so that they could conceive and have children. God defeated the enemies of his faithful people and he, he provided them with a sense of, uh, of security and prosperity. And all this comes to a climax in, in verse 35 when it says, women received back their dead by resurrection. The picture here is that mothers had their dead children raised back to life. What an incredible miracle that is for God's people of faith. But notice what follows immediately in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. There's a shift here. There's a very prominent shift. All of a sudden the text changes. And and now instead of pictures of great blessing and deliverance, we see accounts of suffering, hardship, misery, pain, persecution. In some instances the suffering is is, is too graphic, too horrible to even think about. Some of these people, they were sawn in two. Literally cut into two pieces while yet alive. Others were stoned, made homeless, flogged and imprisoned, caused to suffer immensely. And who are these people? I mean, prior to verse 35, the text, the focus of the text is clearly on God's people of faith. Who received great blessings of miracles and deliverance and salvation. And that's what you would expect for God's people, isn't it? But now here's another group of people who are suffering in horrible, unimaginable ways. Who are they? You might think that they're wicked people, people who deserve this treatment. But there's no indication of a change like that in this passage. It just flows in verse 35 from mentioning women who had their children resurrected from the dead to to, to mention talking about people who suffered some of the most cruel and difficult hardships imaginable. You see, there's no break in this passage. There's no separation between these two groups of people. So the people who are facing these incredible hardships, they are also people of faith. There's no break in this text. And so it was incredible people of faith who received miracles and blessings from the Lord, but it was also people of faith who received incredible, terrible sufferings and misery. And so by faith, the people of God receive blessings and deliverance. By faith, they are healed. By faith, they are rescued. By faith, miracles. By faith, protection. By faith, 
joy. By faith, torture. By faith, persecution. By faith, poverty and homelessness. By faith, imprisonment. By faith, even death itself. Which tells us one very important thing about how God relates to his people of faith. Sometimes God sees fit to give his faithful people incredible acts of blessing and deliverance and success and healing and rescue. And sometimes he does not do it. Sometimes he lifts his faithful people up out of their misery. Sometimes he keeps them from enduring great pain, but sometimes he does not do it. Why? Why? Why, God, why? Why do you sometimes protect your faithful people from suffering, and why sometimes do you not do it? Why is one faithful believer healed from their illness? Well, another eventually dies after a long, heartbreaking decline. Why does God give one believing couple a household full of children while another struggles with grieves through struggles of infertility? Why does one faithful person live into their 90s while another equally faithful person develops MS and dies in their early 30s? Why, God, do you sometimes have your righteous people suffer so incredibly? Why do you not rescue everybody from their suffering? message today will attempt to answer questions like these, and particularly this one central question, why, God, do you have your faithful people suffer? In answering this question, this message will try to present three reasons, three reasons why God has his faithful people suffer. But first, I have to share two important principles about suffering. So first, two broad principles about suffering, and then three reasons why God has the righteous suffer. So let's begin with these two important principles. We must never forget these as we address this topic of suffering. The first is this. Suffering is often the result of sinful or unwise choices. Suffering is often the result of sinful or unwise choices. So much of the suffering in this world that is deserved is brought upon us by poor, unwise, unrighteous decisions that we make. And so if you lead a life addicted to cigarettes or alcohol, you shouldn't be surprised if you come down with lung cancer or liver cancer. Or if you fail to invest in your children and disciple them as you ought and nurture them, it shouldn't surprise you if one of them goes wayward and disappoints you later on in life. Or if you decide to text while driving a car, it shouldn't surprise you if you get in an accident that injures you or even takes someone's life, perhaps even your own. See, suffering is often the result of sinful or unwise choices. This is clearly true. We see it every day. The Bible affirms this fact. Proverbs says in chapter 5, verse 22, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This guy's sinfulness and foolishness causes great suffering in his life. Or also, Psalm 7, verse 15, The wicked man makes a pit, digging digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And so finish for me the last word of this sentence. If you choose to sin, you choose to suffer, right? When we don't do what's right, we don't do what's smart, suffering often comes our way, which, which means that a large amount of the suffering that people face in this life, it is self-inflicted. And so if you face suffering of some sort, you ask the question, did I bring this upon myself? Am I just facing the consequences of my poor choices? 
But not all suffering falls into that category, not by a long shot. Like when people's homes are wiped out by a tornado. It's not because of a sinful or unwise choice. When a person is born with a genetic disease, it's not something they have brought upon themselves. Or when someone suffers because a loved one is killed by a drunk driver. See, suffering befalls people for reasons that are not self-inflicted. And often very faithful, very wise, very righteous people face tremendous suffering. Why? How could God allow for that? We'll get to that question, but first we need to address another important principle. We know that suffering is often the result of sinful or unwise choices, but we also know that this, God is in total control of all human suffering. The Bible teaches that God is in complete and total control of all things. This is, this is, this is what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. And so Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. He is sovereign over individual decision-making and desires. He's also sovereign over nations and geopolitical forces. Job 12.23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He's also sovereign over nature and everything that happens on the earth. Matthew 10.29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. So he is absolutely sovereign over all that happens here on the earth, everything that happens. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this means that God is totally sovereign over all matters of suffering as well. So that when God looks down on his faithful people and, and suffering and misery, he's not up, he's not there wringing his hands, saying, oh, I really wish I could do something. I wish I could come to their help and bring them out of that. Listen, God is not impotent. He's not weak or powerless in his ability to remove human suffering. He's not observing your suffering and, and being frustrated by an ability, inability to act. He can, without a doubt, take it away. At any moment, with a mere thought, God can eliminate any element of human suffering. And sometimes he does. And that should be a tremendous encouragement to us. There's a reason for us to have faith because we know that no, no matter how dire the situation, there is always room for a miracle. But the miracle does not always come. And sometimes God has his faithful people endure suffering. Why? And how then can God not be considered cruel? Because if he has the ability to rescue people from the suffering, but he does not always do it. This is a question we'll turn to now. So, so let us now consider three reasons why God has his faithful people suffer. The first is addressed well in Romans chapter 5. If you want to turn there, Romans chapter 5, looking at verses 3 through 5. Here in this text, Paul says some shocking words. He says that he rejoices in his suffering. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, he says. Now, what could Paul possibly mean by this? Rejoice here means that Paul has a deep-seated kind of peace or contentment, even thankfulness for his sufferings. It's, 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 not, it's not that Paul delighted in his sufferings or enjoyed his, them. He, he's not a narcissist. He says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where he, we see where Paul pleased with the Lord to remove his sufferings. But God didn't answer those prayers. And so Paul had to learn how to bear up and endure his sufferings. And eventually we see here in Romans that Paul developed a true sense of peace and even gratefulness for his hardships. He learned to rejoice in them. And this is pretty incredible when we consider all the different ways that Paul suffered. Let me share with you Paul's own personal list of his own sufferings. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now that's suffering. Paul knew suffering in very personal and intimate ways. He eventually got to the point that he could say we rejoice in our sufferings. How could Paul say that? I mean, if you or I faced that list, we probably wouldn't rejoice. Instead, we would despair. But Paul rejoices. How? He gives us the reasons in the verse that follows. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So what we have here is essentially an explanation for why Paul can say we rejoice in our sufferings. Notice the progression of the text. He says that the suffering produces endurance, which essentially is is a growing ability to persevere through hardships. It means that suffering produces a great capacity to stick with it and to make it through a difficult season. And notice the result of that endurance. It is character. And character here is essentially, it essentially refers to righteous qualities of a person. It's the degree to which a person is Christ-like in their life, how much they have a godly heart and godly disposition. So, so Paul says that the suffering, suffering produces Christ-likeness in our lives. And that Christ-likeness then produces hope, hope in the goodness of God and his ability to bring a person through any painful trial they face. And hope here essentially means faith in God's promises no matter what trials may come. So we see that suffering produces something positive, doesn't it? And Paul's point is that the experience of suffering, it produces Christ-like character and faith in our lives. And herein lies the first important reason why God has his faithful people suffer. Why does God have his faithful people suffer? For their own sake, he does it. For the sake of his people. For the sake of his people, he has them endure suffering so that they would grow and mature. So that through suffering, we would experience an increase in character and Christ-likeness. You see, suffering is often a crucible in which character is formed. Just as if you take a kind of a raw chunk of metal. It's not pretty. It's not good for anything. In order to become something more useful or beautiful, what do you have to do with that metal? It has to be changed by being melted and put through a crucible of fire. And ask a believer who's been through a very hard and difficult trial, and hopefully they have a story to tell about how that trial grew them spiritually and conform them more into the likeness of Christ. So God does change his people and grow them through trials. Let me tell you how this has happened in my own life. I can't say that I've had a life of great suffering. I've had some hardships, as we all have, but I by no means am an expert on suffering, and I praise God for that. But about four years ago, my wife Jessica and I faced the most difficult trial of our now nearly eight years of marriage. And by God's grace, we became pregnant and we're expecting our second child. But at our first ultrasound, we received some shocking news. Apparently, Jessica had what was called a complete placenta previa. And this is a condition where the placenta is positioned below the baby instead of above it. This carries with it all sorts of difficult complications and risks. The condition requires a mandatory C-section. And the doctors cautiously informed us that Upon delivery, it was very possible that the placenta would not detach from the uterus, and that could lead lead to life-threatening hemorrhaging. And so for months, we waited and and prayed. 
anticipating what this birth would bring for us. And there are no promises that things were going to turn out okay. In fact, there were some very real concerns that they would, in fact, not. The waiting period forged our character in many different ways. We were forced to trust in God more and have faith in his goodness. We were driven to our knees more to seek him in prayer. We grew together as a couple as we faced this trial and all this uncertainty together. But finally, and finally that day came. And we entered into that delivery room with real anxiety, but also a stronger faith in God's goodness, believing that no matter what we faced on the other side, he would be sufficient. And by God's grace, that C-section went as planned. And though there are no serious complications for Jessica, but not so for our little baby girl, Liana. Due to the high risk, the doctors decide to perform the C-section early, apparently too early for little Leah, and her lungs were underdeveloped. She couldn't breathe on her own. She had to endure two weeks in the NICU. Here's a picture of her there. And some of you have faced a trial just like this, and if you have, I have a special compassion for you. It's a very difficult thing to suddenly be thrown a curveball and to give birth to a baby who is not at all healthy. And we lived at the University of Chicago Hospital for two weeks in the Ronald McDonald House, waiting, yearning for that day when we could take little Leah home. And by God's miraculous grace, that day did arrive. She made it through this, and she's a healthy little baby girl today. But it didn't happen until God did some more work on our character. He taught us more about his sufficiency and our need to wait upon him. He taught us lessons about life and gave us a new perspective on things. In fact, one day while I was sitting by my daughter's bedside in the NICU, I wrote these paragraphs thinking about our experience in this place. I wrote, as I reflect on this place, I discover a modern parable for an age-old truth, that the love in this room profoundly mirrors the love that our Father has for us. He looks to us with the same compassion, the same heart, the same tender care and concern. He knows every aspect of our lives in excruciating detail. We are his little ones. And he desperately wants to see us get well. You see, when one considers the awesome and infinite power of God, there's little doubt that he sees each of us, just like I see the tiny babies in this room. In his eyes, we're just as helpless, just as weak, just as vulnerable. Truth be told, we're all far more feeble than we feel and far less strong than we seem. We are all on life support. The plug could be pulled at any time. And sadly, all too often, a false sense of security keeps us from being dependent on his care. Now, that's a lesson I learned through this trial. And you know what? If I could redo those days of hardship and make it so this whole experience never happened, I wouldn't do it. Not in a million years. Why? Because suffering produces character, growth, and maturity, and better perspective on life. And this is the first reason why God has his faithful people suffer. For the sake of his people, he does it. And while suffering should always produce growth in character, it doesn't always. You see, for character to be forged in the crucible of suffering, we have to be willing, faithful participants. We have to submit ourselves to its fires and allow that refining work of suffering to rend our hearts. That won't happen if you get bitter. Or if you develop a deep resentment towards God in the process, it won't happen if you wallow in self-pity rather than cling to the promises of God. You see, God's first purpose in suffering, it can be thwarted by our sin. 
And when that happens, when we allow that to happen, it is a tragedy that is worse than the suffering itself. And so when the suffering comes, we need to submit ourselves to God and ask Him to refine us and grow us through these fires of our hardships. We must fight against our tendency to be bitter or resentful. Instead, we need to seek to have God's perspective on our sufferings and see them as something that He can use to forge our character to be more like Christ. Of course, sometimes suffering results in our physical death. But even that results in our benefit. Because if you're in Christ... Even if your life is taken by a cruel disease, a new life awaits. By God's design, suffering and death, it is a necessary doorway through which we all pass in order to receive blessings that are far more abundant than any we receive here on earth. And so God's first purpose for our suffering, it is for our own sake, for the growth of our character and faith in Him, and eventually for the purpose of bringing us home to be with Jesus in the life to come. It's the first reason. And for the second reason, let's now turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. Going back to the section here where we see God's faithful people suffering. There's a, there's an odd little phrase that appears in here. Let me begin reading again at verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Now, what do you think that little phrase of whom the world was not worthy means? Apparently, these people of faith who faced tremendous suffering, the world was not worthy of them. That seems like an odd little phrase, doesn't it? What does it mean? If the world was not worthy of these people, it means the world did not deserve them. The world didn't deserve these faithful people who suffered. But but what's up with that? It it, It seems that God was somehow in some way presenting these people to the world. He was, in a sense, giving them or sharing them with the world. Essentially, what this text is saying is that these suffering people, they were a gift to the world. That suffering of faithful people, their lives, they are a gift that God gives to the undeserving people of the world. But how are faithful people who suffer a gift to the world? Isn't it a blessing when you see someone endure a hard or difficult tragedy with a spirit of optimism and hope? Doesn't that challenge you to have keep, the, keep your, perspe- your hardships in perspective? Isn't it a blessing when you encounter somebody who, who, who is very poor or handicapped and still receives great joy out of just the little things in life? Doesn't that challenge you to be content in your own circumstances? Isn't it a blessing when an unbeliever sees a Christian suffer, but with a hope that seems to defy understanding? Doesn't that communicate to the unbeliever that there is validity and relevance to our faith? So the world sees Christians who suffer and suffer well. Do you know what they see? They see our faith is more genuine more authentic, and all of a sudden when the rubber hits the road, unbelievers see that maybe there is actually something to this Christianity thing after all. And whether they admit it or not, Christianity becomes more attractive to an unbeliever when they see a Christian suffer well. Because everybody knows that hard days are coming for them. And most of us live with some sort of fear of those days. And when unbelievers see Christians endure suffering with a spirit of faith and perseverance and joy when they see that a Christian's faith is helping them to endure their trial, that is a powerful testimony of the gospel. 
It is a powerful way to show the world that, yes, our faith really does matter. That Christians are people who suffer like everyone else, but we suffer differently. We all face the same difficult trials and hardships, but as we do so, we are people who are not without hope. Because we serve a true and living God who helps us and sustains us through our trials. And at the end of the day, we know that there is more to this life than just the things we stand to lose through suffering. And so we can lose our health. We can lose our home. We can lose our family, but we can never lose Jesus and his promises to us. And so as we suffer, we strive to live for Christ and we maintain a perspective that we know to die is gain. That there is an incredible, indescribable life to come. And as as much as we, we love the things of this world and the people of this world, there's something far greater that awaits us. And friends, that is hope. A hope that sustains us through our trials and a hope that Christianity offers to a sick and dying world that is desperately searching for something to hope in. By God's design, he makes that hope real. And tangible to the people of the world through the sufferings of Christians. As we suffer, we are gifts to the world. That people might look at us and see the hope of the gospel. And find reason to embrace Christ by faith themselves. So the first reason why God has his faithful people suffer for their own sake, he does it. But the second is for the sake of the world. For the sake of the world, he does it. I'll never forget one of the more tragic examples of suffering in our church. Many of you knew and remember Kent Elo. He was a deacon here, a young godly man in his 30s. He was a very gifted guy, he, very successful in life, a wonderful family. He had the whole world before him, but he contracted a terrible form of brain cancer. And in a few short years, it took his life. But I'll never forget one thing he said to us. Reflecting on his cancer, he said... I feel like I've won the lottery. I feel like I've won the lottery. Now, how could he say that? What's up with that? So he could say that. He could say that because he saw his suffering as a gift. A gift he could use to point people to the saving faith in Jesus. A gift that God could use to show people that Jesus is real, that he ought to be believed in. When you face hard suffering, do you feel like you've won the lottery? Do you feel like your suffering is actually a gift? Are you trying to have it used in that way? Are you trying to be a demonstration of hope and confidence in Christ that the gospel might be advanced through your suffering? You should. Because God has his faithful people suffer in this life in order to save others from suffering in the next. Did you get that? God has his faithful people suffer in this life in order to save others from suffering in the next and isn't that after all just what christ has done for us he endured tremendous suffering to show us god's love and sometimes god has us endure tremendous suffering so that we might show others his love and hope that can be found in christ and so for the sake of the world god has his faithful people suffer now for the third reason the third reason is this That God has his faithful people suffer for the sake of his own glory. For the sake of his glory, he does this. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Job. 
the book of Job, perhaps no other single book in the Bible helps us more with the theology of suffering than the book of Job. And here what we see, here we see that God has his faithful people suffered really for the sake of his, his own glory. The book begins with an incredible description of this man named Job, verse 1, chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. And Job was the richest guy around. He was also among the most godly. He had it all, incredible wealth, a wonderful family, and a tremendous faithful relationship with God. Despite all of his privilege, he was very humble and contrite. He, he, he was careful to maintain utter devotion to the Lord. And particularly because of these reasons, Job got a huge target painted on his back by Satan himself. And this is where the book of Job is just fascinating. It shows us a window into heaven and a conversation that Satan had with God about wanting to take Job down. And so we see in verse 7, The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so Satan comes to the Lord and basically says, Job is so righteous simply because he's so comfortable. He doesn't really love you. He's faithful to you because you've made his life so very easy. Let me make Job miserable. Then you'll see that he'll turn away from you and even curse you. And God's response to this was, Go for it, Satan. Inflict as much suffering on Job as you'd like. Just one thing, don't kill him. And so the Lord allowed Satan to have his way with Job, and this is what happened. All of his wealth was plundered. All of his livestock was taken. His sons and daughters all died when a house collapsed on them, and Job himself endured incredible physical suffering as he uh, experienced a terrible skin disease with sores all over his body. His whole life crumbled before him, really just in a matter of moments. And all this happened by God's decree. And eventually God did restore Job and gave him back everything that he had lost. In fact, the text says in, in chapter 42, verse 10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And so Job ended up being better off after, after the suffering. But the whole episode tells us a lot about suffering, doesn't it? First, again, it shows us that God is in complete control of suffering. Satan couldn't cause Job to suffer one bit without God permitting him to do so. Satan essentially had to ask for permission. But second, it shows that God sometimes has his faithful people suffer in order to prove their faith and allegiance to him. You see, God wanted to show to everyone, including Satan, that Job was the real deal. And why would he want to do that? Because as people saw the steadfastness of Job's faith, as Job himself grew in character through the suffering, God's glory was magnified. Notice Job's response as he faced his, faced his suffering. Chapter 1, verse 20. Immediately after all this happened, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. 
And he said, Naked I came from my father's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, do you think Job's response glorified God? You bet it did. And allowed God to be glorified through Job's life in a way that would not have been possible if the suffering had not come. So why did God allow have Satan to destroy Job's life only to later build it back for him? Answer to, the answer is to give Job the opportunity to magnify God's glory in incredible ways. And friends, God still operates this way today. It's one reason why his faithful people suffer. God knows that through their suffering, he will receive great glory when that person demonstrates that their hope is in, not in the things of this world, but in God himself. And when they say with genuineness and earnestness, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And perhaps thinking about that way of God is distasteful to you. Perhaps it makes God seem cruel or self-serving to you. Perhaps it seems unloving to you. But here's another way to think about it. Suppose that your life was completely devoid of suffering. Suppose that you never once had a bad day. You never faced tragedy in your family. You never once had to wrestle with sickness or disease. First, would you ever really feel the need for God in your life? But second, how could you ever really know God fully? I mean, if you never had to deal, deal with suffering or the effects of, of sin, how could you ever really know that God is gracious? How could you ever really know that God is a sustaining presence in our lives? You see, sin and suffering, they create a context by which God can be more fully and completely known and thus more fully and completely glorified. Imagine this with me. What if, what if you never experienced the fallen and broken world we live in, but, but only knew life in heaven and just appeared there? What if we never saw or experienced suffering or hardships? Our only experience was life in heaven, where a perfect utopia where there's no sin, no tears, no suffering, no hardships. How do we ever know that God is merciful? How do we ever know that God really is kind, patient, forgiving, compassionate, really loving? And sure, he could tell us that he's merciful or forgiving, but, but if there's nothing to forgive because there's no sin, how could we ever really worship God for his forgiveness? These attributes of God would purely be just kind of a hypothetical to us rather than an experienced reality. And so God has suffering and evil in the world for a time so that, so that he can express the full range of his person, his kindness, patience, grace, mercy, and love, thus allowing his people to experience and know God for all that he is and then praise God for all those things, thus giving him incredible glory. Here's another way to think about it. I love sweet desserts, okay? Weakness for me. In fact, just this week, I created for my wife, or maybe myself, a homemade tiramisu. And that's one decadent, rich dessert. And your, and your first taste of it, your mouth is just overwhelmed by its sweetness and goodness. But you know what happens after a couple bites? Especially my tiramisu? You lose sensitivity to its flavor. And your mouth kind of gets numb to the richness of it all. So you know what I like to have with my desserts? Strong brewed coffee. Why? Because coffee is bitter. And as you taste the bitter, do you know what that does to your ability to taste the sweet? It renews it. 
It deepens your appreciation of the sweetness. And in the same sense, suffering is like strong coffee. If life was always sweet, we would take the sweetness for granted. We would fail to realize how good it really is. But throw in some bitter suffering, and now you realize and treasure God's goodness all the more. And no place will this be more true than in heaven itself. You see, our experiences of suffering on earth, this will all be but a blink of an eye in the expanse of eternity. And someday, if you're a Christian, you will look back on this brief, infinitesimally short life, and the memory of its bitterness will help you appreciate the richness of heaven all the more. And so that when you're there before the throne of God, what will you be most compelled to worship and give God glory for? For eternity, we will worship God for his love and compassion, kindness, mercy, forgiveness, grace, things that we wouldn't have fully known without also experiencing suffering. But I think we will most worship God for the cross. We will worship Jesus for his own suffering. And think of all the glory that God is receiving now and will receive for all eternity because of the way in which his son suffered. And likewise, we in this life, when we share in the sufferings of Christ, as we do that, our suffering, it provides a, a, its own context for God to be glorified. And so this is a third reason why God has his faithful people suffer. He does it for the sake of his own glory because some suffering is necessary for God to be fully revealed for his people to know him completely and because its bitterness heightens our appreciation for all that is good and wonderful not only in this life but also in the life to come so here then are three reasons to this vexing question why does God have his faithful people suffer for the sake of his people he does it particularly to create growth in their character. For the sake of the world, he does it, particularly to authenticate and spread the gospel through suffering. And for the sake of his glory, he does it, particularly to increase worship of himself. Now, in these last moments, let me get very practical with you. And as we suffer, how do we, how do we bear up under those sufferings? So the purpose of God are fully met through our hardships. How do we not let, let sin get in the way of these purposes? How do we not become bitter? How do we not wallow in self-pity? Well, here are a few, just four keys, ways, practical ways that we need to approach our suffering, ways we can suffer well. The first, keep an eternal perspective. Keep an eternal perspective. Realize that your hardship, it is truly but a blink of an eye in the expanse of eternity. That all suffering, this, this thing that you face, it too will pass. And even if the way through it ultimately results in God bringing you home to be with him, that suffering will end. And all suffering, it will seem like the briefest moment from the perspective of eternity. So so strive to put your hardships into that perspective. But also remember that whenever you face a hardship of any kind, that suffering is an experience that will fuel your worship of God for eternity. That God is bringing that bitterness into your life right now so that later and for all of eternity, you can better appreciate and worship God for all of his glories and goodness. Keep that eternal perspective. It will help you through your suffering. Next, hold on to the things of this life loosely. Hold on to the things of this life loosely. I mean, we all love the things of this life, don't we? 
And the reasons why suffering hurts so much often is because it always involves us losing things that we love so deeply, our health, our family and friends, our possessions, our comforts, our opportunities. And the pain of that loss, it is magnified if we hold on to those things so tightly. If we treasure them so strong, it, it, it hurts when we lose them. And so what's the solution? Strive not to treasure the temporary things of this world so much. Hold on to them loosely. Appreciate them while you have them, but resolve right now that, that, that you will let them go whenever God deems it fit to take them away. And value most of all, most of all, the things that you will never lose. I think this was Job's secret. He had so very much to treasure, but it seems that the things he treasured most were the things he could never lose. His faith, his relationship with the Lord, his trust in the promises of God. And treasure these things. Treasure Jesus more than anything else. And these other things will begin to pale in comparison to him. And then when it's time for you to let them go, you'll more freely be able to do so. It will hurt less because you know that you still have Jesus. So strive to hold on to the world's treasures loosely. Next, don't compare yourself to people who suffer less. Don't compare yourself to people who suffer less. As we suffer, our tendency is to look at others who are suffering less and say, why do they get it? It's such an easy life. Why do things always seem to work out for them? It's not fair. Why am I getting the short end of the stick? Listen, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't worry about them. Their time is coming. Okay? It most certainly is. So don't compare yourself to people who suffer less. Doing so will only destroy your ability to find peace in your suffering and it will ultimately make your suffering worse. So don't compare yourself to people who suffer less. If you, if you want to compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to somebody who suffers more. And that you will appreciate more what you have and not be discouraged by what you have lost. So don't compare yourself to people who suffer less. That only fuels bitterness and anger. And discontent, and it only adds to your suffering, it doesn't relieve it. And lastly, actively strive to fulfill God's purposes for suffering. Actively strive to fulfill God's purposes for suffering. Remember the three reasons why God has his faithful people suffer. And try to have those purposes be real in your life. So as you suffer, make sure to ask God, God, what are you trying to teach me through this? Pray, God, change me, mature me through this. I don't want to be the same on the other side of it. And as you suffer, look for opportunities to show people the hope that you have in Jesus. Strive to encourage the people around you with a confidence and a peace in the goodness of God. Look for opportunities to tell unbelievers that while you suffer, you are not a person without hope. And be sure to articulate that hope to them. That they might see Jesus in you and perhaps be saved from eternal suffering themselves. And as you suffer, regularly ask God to be glorify himself through your hardship. Regularly ask him to help you have the initial response of Job. Who in the face of immense suffering did not turn to bitterness and self-pity. Instead he worshipped. And while that seems to be an impossible task, it is not impossible. Because in Christ, all things are possible through him who gives us strength. His grace is sufficient for you. No matter what you face, no matter how you suffer, his promises are real. His sustaining grace is real. 
And so trust Him. Trust Him. Be a person of faith. By faith. By faith. Have faith in the good purposes of God for suffering. Receive that hardship by faith. It will only last for a time. And soon, very soon, God will make all things new. Let's pray.